Would you pray with me, please? Father, we are grateful to you for this day. We are grateful, my Father, we're so grateful to be with you, to be worshiping you, to be acknowledging you. Father, what an opportunity we have now to bring glory to your name. My Father, I pray you glorify yourself. Glorify yourself in us, through us, and even beyond us. Doing us that that you want done. My Father, my Father, speak to us. Speak to us the words you want us to have. I pray this in the glorious and precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Good morning, everyone. May I ask you to open your Bibles, please? If you brought your Bible, open it to the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John. If you didn't bring your Bibles, there's probably Bibles in front of you. And if not, uh, just use the insert that is in your bulletin. But I think uh, opening your Bibles would be a lot better because you'll see more what I want to say to you today. Chapter 17 of the Gospel of John. We've been in, in the Gospel of John for the last three or four weeks. If, if not, actually, almost all of Lent we were in the Gospel of John, and, and, um, and certainly the last three or four weeks we've been preaching on this section pretty much um, that, that I'm going to be speaking about today. But we're going to be talking about what is known theologically as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. This is probably the longest of all the prayers of Jesus we find in the Gospels, and it may even be the longest prayer in the Bible. I, I'm not sure of that, but I know Solomon prayed for a long time when he was dedicating the temple. But I think this may be certainly one of the longest prayers that we find in, uh, in the Scriptures, and, and especially in the Gospel, and certainly in Jesus. So, so this is a very important prayer. It's the high priestly prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I think He has some important things to say to us and to show us. Uh, first of all, He, he begins his, his prayer with these words, it says in the gospel that, that Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Father, the hour has come. What, what a heavy moment, isn't it? What a heavy moment whether the disciples understood what he was saying or not, we certainly understand it today, that Jesus would just raise his eyes to heaven and say, Father, the hour has come. It, it was kind of a, a closing, you know, an end. His prayer indicated a, a moment of closure. A moment in what... Everything he, he had come about was closing now at this moment. 
conclusion, fulfillment. I mean, we could almost say with Jesus from the cross, it is finished. That's partly what he's saying here. Father, the hour has come. What an amazing, amazing statement to make at that moment. That's how he begins his prayer. Now, let us put it in in context, which I think it's extremely important for us to understand it. That this prayer of Jesus returns us to the upper room. That's where Jesus is. And that's where he lifts up his eyes to heaven, probably at table. After the Eucharist has been done. After the commandment to love one another. After Jesus gets on his knees and washes the disciples' feet. It is not outside of the house. It's in the upper room area. Where Jesus lifts up his eyes and says, Father, now is the time. Father, the hour has come. So the prayer takes us back to Monday Thursday. It takes us back to the, the, the last time that Jesus spends with his disciples. It takes us back to the Passover meal that Jesus was actually celebrating Passover with his disciples a day earlier. Because the actual day of Passover, he would be the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He would have been hanging on the cross all day from very early in the morning until about three o'clock. And then he's brought down and buried. And that's when Passover would have begun. So he's celebrating Passover a day early. It is the evening in which Jesus is closing so many books or closing so many things. And I may have said this to you before, but it doesn't matter. We all need to hear it over and over and over again. This is the evening when our Lord Jesus Christ kind of packs into just a few hours the most important things he wants to say to the disciples. If you knew that this was your last day on earth, if you knew that tonight you were going to die, how would you spend the rest of this day? Who would you spend the rest of this day with? If you knew definitely that tonight was your night, what would you do this day? I hope you're not going to be answering emails. I hope you're not going to be thinking about work. What would you do on your last few hours left in this life. Would you, I hope, would spend it with the people you love. With family. Perhaps with your children or grandchildren. 
Perhaps you want to prepare a time of prayer and be with the Lord and spend time preparing, confessing, preparing your heart, preparing yourself to meet your Lord and Savior. Perhaps you will want to spend some time telling your spouse, if you have a spouse or or your children, where the important papers are. Perhaps you want to Uh, To spend time just telling them how much you love them. Perhaps you want to tell them the most important things you want them to keep from your life. Your experiences, your joys, your sorrows. What have you learned about life? What have you learned about marriage? What have you learned about God? What do you want to leave as your last will and testament? Because in a way, that's what Jesus is doing this evening. He's giving them and packing in there the things that have probably the most importance in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus knows that this is the last evening with his disciples in John spends four chapters dealing with this day, this evening. From chapter 13 to chapter 17, it's all in the upper room. It's all this last evening. And this is the evening that Jesus wanting to leave them the most important things they were going to need to maintain the church and keep the church going. One of the things Jesus does is he teaches them about servanthood. So he takes off his garments, his outer garments, puts on a towel, gets a basin, and goes and starts washing each of the disciples' feet. Chapter 13. And then Peter objects and he says, if you don't let me do this, you have no part of me. You don't get it, Peter. If you don't get this, you don't get anything. So let me do what I'm going to do. And Peter says, yes, Lord, wash all of me. And Jesus even watches Judas' feet that evening. And then he says to them, you call me master and Lord, and I am. And yet your master and Lord have served you and taken the role of the lowest of servants. Go and do likewise. Go and serve one another. So one of the things that Jesus teaches us or teaches his disciples this evening is about being a servant. As the master has served you, you are to go and serve others to the point of lowering yourself to wash dirty, dust-filled, packed feet. And to serve in the name of Jesus. That's one of the major teachings of Jesus that he doesn't want the disciples to forget, to serve one another and to serve sacrificially. The other thing that Jesus spends this evening talking about is he talks to them about loving one another. And repeatedly through this evening, he talks to them about loving one another. And then he spends some time talking them to them about, in my father's house, there are many rooms. 
and telling us about a place called his father's house. Telling us about a place where we will be with him. And he says, and I'm going ahead of you and I'm going to prepare a room. And when I have prepared a room, I will come and get you so that you can be with me forever. What a promise. You can be with me forever. In my father's house, there is many rooms. I'm going to go and prepare one for you. And when the time comes, I will come and get you. And you're coming home, girl. You're coming home, boy. You're coming home to your Father in heaven. And I assure you there is a place preserved for you. That assurance was going to be needed in times of persecution. That assurance was going to be needed in the hard times the church was going to be experiencing in just a few more days. In my Father's house there's many rooms. You're secure. It's set. Nobody can take from you what the Lord is preparing for you. The other thing that he teaches them is about prayer and doing the work of the kingdom. And this is the place from chapter 14 to about chapter 16 where Jesus packs, at least in the Gospel of John, most of his teaching on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is taught in other places in John. I'm not trying to say that it's not. But in these two chapters, or these three chapters, 14, 15, and 16, is where you will find in John the greatest amount of teaching on the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's how important the Holy Spirit was going to be. That He wants to teach them about the Holy Spirit on the last day that He's spending on earth. That's how important the Holy Spirit is. And then he talks to them about persecution. And then he ends the evening with this prayer that we're dealing with today. He ends the evening talking to his father. After having sang a few songs, eaten the meal, established the Eucharist to be perpetually uh, offered and perpetually celebrated. He does all of these things on the few hours he has left to be with them. Can you imagine how important all these things are that Jesus would make sure that they would get it on the last evening? The hour has come. What hour? Well, clearly, the hour to die. Clearly, the hour to leave. It is time to complete the mission for which Jesus had come into the world. The hour has come to fully finish the work that started with a baby in a manger. Or perhaps even started in the mind of God from eternity. This was the time, this was the moment, this was the, the, the moment in which Jesus had come for, and this was the moment that he was going to finish the work. Father, the hour has come. In fact, he says in verse 11, I am no longer in the world. I am no longer in the world. But these, talking about the disciples, they're still in the world. He says, Father, I'm coming to you. In verse 11. So the hour... 
uh, that he's talking about, he's talking about the hour of the cross and the hour of coming home to the Father. And he speaks about the glory that he had with the Father before coming into the world. Now, if you take a look at chapter 17 of John, in the prayer of Jesus, the prayer is actually divided into three parts. The first portion, which is verses 1 through 5, is Jesus' prayer about himself. It's a prayer that the Son offers the Father about himself. From verse 6 to 19... Jesus is praying for the twelve disciples. And from verse 20 through 26, Jesus is praying for us. For the church that was to come through the ministry and work of these twelve disciples. But it's very interesting that you notice that if Jesus doesn't pray for the twelve, there would be no church. If God does not do his job on the 11, actually, because Judas is already left. If the 11 are not blessed with the prayer and the intercessory prayer of Jesus in their behalf, there would be no church. So the order of the prayer is Jesus to the Father. Jesus on behalf of of the disciples... And then Jesus on behalf of the church that would come after, that would come from the faith of the disciples or through the work and ministry of the disciples. So we may divide the prayer in three parts to understand it, but the reality is that the prayer is one. And there's only one theme really. The theme is the mission of Jesus, the mission for which he came, and the mission that those disciples were going to have to carry on. So it's a very mission-minded prayer that Jesus is praying. He's basically saying, Father, I have finished the work. Bless these eleven, and then bless those that are going to come after him to do the work and continue the work that you have brought me here to do. So it's a very mission-minded and missionary prayer about the ministry That God needs done in this world through you today as well and through me. This morning I only have time to really focus on a small portion of it. I want to deal with this morning just on the prayer of Jesus about himself and a small portion of the prayer that he prays for the disciples. But you can read the entire prayer in chapter 17 of John. Let's just deal with what we are asked to deal with today. The first thing I want to say to you, and I want you to hear me clearly, is that Jesus was a man of prayer. Amen? Amen. Jesus was a man that lived constantly in communion with his Father. We find so many times in Scripture that Jesus would even get up so early in the morning and the disciples would get up and be looking for Him and Jesus was already out there praying and and having communion with His Father. Jesus was a man of prayer. It seems that Jesus started everything with prayer and ended everything with prayer. He prayed in the middle of the day. Sometimes He doesn't seem... You know, sometimes He comes to a miracle moment 
and he doesn't pray, he just orders the thing? Well, the only way you can order the thing is if you started in prayer in the morning. Only when you're a person of prayer, then you can come to a miracle moment and just say to a blind man, open your eyes. Because he's already prepared the way. So Jesus is a man of prayer, deep prayer, constant prayer. In fact, there's not a day or a moment that Jesus is not in communion with his Father. And I would ask you, how are you doing with your prayer life? If prayer was so important to Jesus, being the Son of the living God, being the incarnate God, is it not important to you and to me? We want to pray and see miracles, but we want it instantaneously. I think we need to be in communion with the Lord on a constant basis, so that when we need the power, the Holy Spirit is already preceding us in doing what the need may be. In fact, that the encounters we have in life be preordained by God because He wants to show His glory. But I think it is important that we understand that if prayer was important to Jesus, prayer must be important to us. We must make the time. We do, cannot rely on what I call SOS prayers, emergency prayers. You saw something in the car as you're driving home. Oh, let me pray to the Lord. We need to learn to have communion with God on a daily, on a daily, and every morning way. We need to make sure that we set time during the day. And I would say this to you. Don't ever leave your home, your home without having prayed you and your family before the Lord. Don't ever leave your home and go into the world without the armor of God put on. Because you're, you're out there in, in, in a world that is, is crazy sometimes and dangerous. You want to make sure that you have said your prayers. You want to make sure you have blessed your, your spouse before they leave. You want to make sure your children have been prayed for before they go to school. You want to make sure that the Holy Spirit is in charge of your family and the people you love. If prayer was important to Jesus, it better be important to us. And we better make the time. Good time. Deep time. Not SOS, quick, I don't hardly have time kind of prayer. So that's the first thing I would want you to see. Jesus is about to face the most difficult time of his life. And he begins with this prayer. And then he begins the prayer. And, and as he prays for himself, he begins with these words. Father, Glorify your Son. Glorify your Son. That's what he prays for himself. That's his one request to the Father. Father, glorify thy Son. And he actually is asking that he glorifies the Son both on earth and in heaven. Glorify the Son... 
in what's about to happen. Father, glorify your son because the cross eventually is going to glorify you. But unless I get glorified by you, how will I glorify your name, Father? Glorify your son because I'm about to go through the difficult moments of this mission. He's talking about the cross. He's talking about dying and he needs the Father's glory so that the cross eventually glorifies the Father. So he says, Father, glorify thy name. And then he says, and you can read it, I'm not reading it, but he says, and glorify your son with the glory that I had before. I think he's talking about the full ministry of Jesus where he needs to be glorified. He wants to be glorified through the cross, through the resurrection, through the ascension, and through his coronation in heaven at the right hand of the Father. He's asking the Father to glorify the Son so that every name under heaven would eventually bow down and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Glorify the Son as your minister. Glorify the Son as your Son that came in your name to do what you ask Him to do. Now glorify your Son that the Son will glorify you and not fail in what I'm about to do. Father, be present with me. Let your presence be so powerful in me. Glorify your Son that the Son would glorify you with everything I'm about to do. And it includes the cross, but it goes beyond the cross. If the resurrection will glorify the Son and glorify the Father, the ascension would glorify the Son and glorify the Father, the coronation of Jesus would glorify the Son, because He will receive a name like no other name, that at the name of Jesus... Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. Glorify the Son, because in the glory of the Son is the glory of the Father. In the glory of the Son is the glory of the Father. So he's asking to be glorified on earth by what he's about to go through and to be glorified in heaven when he ascends to heaven and goes to the right hand and the whole world will know that Jesus Christ came in the name of the Father and that he is the Son of God and that he's fulfilled and completed the work that the Father had asked him to do. It will glorify the Son, which eventually glorifies the Father. And then Jesus says, after he says glorify the Son, he says, Father... I have glorified you on earth. From the moment I was born to the moment I'm about to finish this earth and finish this work, I have glorified you. And you might say, how, how did Jesus glorify the Son? He, he tells us in the prayer, he says, because I have accomplished the work. The fact that I have finished all that you have entrusted in my hands... The fact that I have, and I'm about to close it, I'm about to finish it, I'm about to perfect it, 
I'm about to bring it to fulfillment, that glorifies you. My obedience glorifies the Father. So he says, Father, I have glorified you on earth. So he says, I have accomplished the work. And then second, he says, I have given eternal life to those that you gave to me. Because they were yours in the first place. And you gave me these 11 guys. And I have taught them eternal life. What is eternal life? You know, it is so beautiful in this passage. If you look at it, it's about verse 4. He says, and this is eternal life. That you would know the Father. Let me read it to you just like it says it here so that I don't add anything to it. And Verse 3. And this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life. That they would know you. And let me tell you, that they may know the Father doesn't mean that you learn a whole bunch of doctrine. It doesn't mean that you can recite the creed and even believe every statement of the creed. You can know about the Father and still not know the Father. Because there are innumerable number of believers that fill churches every day who can recite all the major doctrines of justification, salvation by faith, grace only, through faith only, all of that stuff. And you still don't see the fruit of a changed life. You can know in your head, and it has made no difference in your life. To know the Father has to have an effect. If it doesn't have an effect, then you don't know the Father, nor the Son. Because you cannot come to an intimate knowledge of God without it affecting you completely and totally and changing you into something that you couldn't change yourself into. Amen? Amen. So this is eternal life. It's not the knowledge that I can recite there's only one God and only Him I will bow down to. Eternal life is not just doctrine, eternal life is to know the Father personally and intimately in such a way that your life is changed forever. That you know the Father and that you know that the Son came because the Father sent Him. That is eternal life. To have that kind of a relationship that transforms you. That you're no longer you. That you're no longer the where you were. Because Jesus had made it. That is faith. If faith hasn't changed you, there's something wrong with your faith. If your faith has no effect, there's something wrong with your faith. So he says, Father, I have glorified you because in this life, I have done the work. I have given them eternal life. And he says... And I have given them your word. You gave me your word. I gave it to them. And now they're going to give it to others. I received your word. I gave it to them. They received it. They believed it. 
And if they don't pass it on, there's no future for the church. I says, I have manifested your presence in me, and I have given them your word. That they may know it, that they may receive it, that they may believe it. That's the prayer of Jesus, basically for himself. Glorify your son, and your son has glorified you through the way I have lived my life. And then he changes in verse 5, I believe, or verse 6, and he begins to pray for the 11 disciples. Verse 6, he begins to pray for the 11. And there's really two things that I want to say to you in the prayer of Jesus for the disciples. One is that Jesus says to them, Father, keep them in thy name. Here's the thing that that you need to get. While the disciples were with Jesus, you don't find one single prayer of one of the disciples through all of the Gospels. Not once do you find Peter or James or any of them praying. When Jesus was with them, Jesus prayed to the Father for them. Jesus took care of their needs. Jesus modeled the kingdom. Jesus defended them from Pharisees and Sadducees. Jesus corrected them when they got in trouble with each other. Jesus was constantly the one that was doing all these things for them. He protected them. He defended them. And now he's leaving. So who's going to take care of it now? The prayer of Jesus is, Father, when I'm gone, keep them in your name. Keep them connected to that name I have manifested to them. Keep them connected. Father, please don't abandon them. I won't be here to defend them. I won't be here to protect them. I will not be here to teach them anymore. Whatever I've taught, I've taught. They're going to have to remember it by the Holy Spirit. But I'm not going to be here anymore. You, Father, I'm asking you for this 11. Keep them in your word. Keep them connected to all they've heard and seen me do. Keep them connected to your word. And then the second thing he prays for them, which is very important. He says, Father, that they be one. That they be one as you and I are one. That they be one. You know why? Because with Jesus gone, they were going to need each other. There was not going to be somebody else taking care of them. They were going to have to learn to take care of each other. They were going to have to to, to teach each other what each remembered Jesus say. They were going to have to defend each other in the midst of attacks. They were going to have to pray for each other. They were going to have to wash each other's feet. They were going to have to depend on one another. Father, Father, make them one. Make them one like you and I are one or they won't survive. They won't make it. They'll each go individually in a different direction and they won't make it. You know one of the saddest things of the church today is that we all come together on Sunday mornings and most of us don't see each other the rest of the week. 
We don't know the person that just had surgery last week. We don't necessarily make a phone call. We don't see each other. We don't have meals with each other. We don't pray for each other. It's like we live in a, in a life where we're only connected on Sundays and then we go in millions different directions, get busy in life, and we're not one. We're not one. We're only one on Sunday mornings. And that's a sad statement of what Jesus prayed for. I think Jesus prayed that when one in the church hurts, we all should be there. That when one rejoices, we all should rejoice. Listen, there's no excuse with all the media we have now, Facebook and Twitter and all this other stuff. There's no, no reason why not to be connected. I can see pictures of your family. I can see what you do, you're doing. I can see what restaurant you were in last night. You can see mine and my grandchildren and my victories and my defeats. You can see everything everywhere. There's no reason why we cannot email each other any longer during the week just to say how you're doing. There's no reason to have not unity that Jesus prayed for. We can make time for one another. We must make time for one another. Because that's the only way we will encourage each other. Pray for each other. Know what's going on in each other's lives. And I know we're not perfect. I know I'm not perfect. But it is that struggle that we must do every time. And we must fight the busyness of life for the unity that Jesus is praying for. Let me say one other thing about that. Unity doesn't mean sameness. We're not the same. Nobody's the same. Our lives are different. Our histories are different. Our backgrounds are different. Our colors are different. Our heights are different. Oneness doesn't mean sameness. But oneness means that Jesus is the glue that holds us together as his body. Jesus' prayer for the church, for the eleven, and later for the rest of the church, is, Father, Father, that they be one. Please, Father. Please, Father, bind them together. Please, Father, they'll need to depend on each other. They need to love each other. They need to support each other. Without that, they will not survive the mission that the Father has commissioned us. So what's the application of this prayer of Jesus? I, I think it's very, very clear to us that we need to look at our own prayer life. And we need to be connected to the Father. I don't think I need to rehash that. I think we need to apply the fact that Jesus' prayer is that we be kept in the Father's name. We need to be in the Word. You can't come to church to hear the Word, and the rest of the week you're not in the Word. Every one of us I know, we own at least three or four or five different Bibles and translations. We should get in some form of Bible study. Either with a group or the internet. Or I mean, I've, I've created for you a number of ways that you can get involved in a Bible study. Even from your home. You don't have to even leave your home to be in a, in a scripture reading. 
You need to be in the Word that the Father gave the Son that He gave to the disciples that He's giving to us. You need to be connected to the Father's name. And I think we need to learn to apply the prayer of Jesus that we be one. Look, there are multiple denominations. They're not all the same, but there's only one Jesus. Our unity is in Jesus. Some denominations baptize one way, other denominations worship another way, other denominations like incense and bells and all of that. It doesn't matter. Oneness doesn't mean sameness, but it means oneness. Unity in one person, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, through whom all that the God had commissioned, all that God commissioned came to be. Through whom we have the grace of God, through whom we have salvation, and through whom we have the glory. And that's what binds us together. Don't dwell on what divides you. Dwell on what unites you. That we may respond to the prayer of Jesus. Father, that they be one. That they be one as you and I are one. And the rest of the prayer, you can all read it in chapter 17. Especially the portion that has to do with us and what he's saying about us. Stand with me, please.